Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. get to have some airtime? Well, yes, you do. <laughs> All right. Well, um, welcome to Conspiranormal. Thanks for coming back and listening with us. Uh, Adam would like me to talk about uh, my first paranormal interaction. I wouldn't say it's your first paranormal interaction, but first you have to introduce True. the man that makes things work. Oh, I forgot the introduction. I thought the show was all about me, see? (laughs) (laughs) It is all about you, Luke, really. It really is. Everybody clamors for you to be back on. We we got Podcast Jesus over here, Rob, man. (laughs) Hello, hello. (laughs) Pod Christ. We we got uh, Giggly... Ruffian Adam over here, rust, right. rustic beard, rustic beard, with his Bob man. Ross shirt on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In space, Bob Look, Ross is painting the universe, my friend. Looking trippy. Oh, I dude, that's yeah. a legitimate, solid theory too. It, it, it probably is true. <laughs> probably you get up there and you, God, it's Bob Ross. <laughs> Have you seen the new Netflix? There's like a Netflix show that takes all the old Bob Ross stuff, and it's called Chill with Bob Ross. Have you seen that? No. 
I'm surprised Alyssa doesn't watch it. She probably has not heard of it. Well, it's called you, you, you Chill with Bob Ross. And I guess it's for people that want to go to sleep or they're just stoners that want to sit there and just watch Bob Ross you know and, they and drool play, and they're in, in, their, in their flakes in the morning. You, you know that they play that like constantly at Fat Bites on the screens. Yeah. How is it different from the original show? I think, well, I think it's just they took different, I haven't watched it, but I think it's just different clips that they took from the shows. Cause like he was on for like, several years and like i remember coming back home from school and watching bob ross like do his little like his little birds and like these little trees happy little trees happy little <laughs> trees i'm bob ross always and, so uh, encouraging he's so serene man you know that guy that guy had to have been 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 hitting the pipe i mean just there's no way it was, <laughs> yeah, either that he, or it was just too much lsd in 1968 at one time I had to take a little bit of a of a smoke. Speaking of happy little trees. <laughs> We're just gonna put this guy right here in the shades between these two. No one will find him there. <laughs> this is me bearing a body. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, chill with Bob Ross. So I think you can just fall asleep listening to Bob Ross. Like it's it's probably got like subliminal messages in it. <laughs> you know, it's probably it's probably like the NSA watching you, like pretending it's Bob Ross. I think he his other personality probably just came out after the show. But he's just like just a demanding guy who's just yelling <laughs> at people, like you didn't get that shot right. <laughs> he's like Alex Jones. He like turns into Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> You know, everybody says that uh, Bill Hicks turned into Alex Jones, but I think it's really Sam Kennison. I think Sam Kennison turned into Alex Jones. <laughs> like, that's really what happened. Once you reach a certain level of woke, dude, you just start becoming mm-hmm. Alex Jones. Like, mm-hmm. Alex Jones is pretty woke. <laughs> you know, he he tells me all about the 360-degree Freemasons and the gay frogs. <laughs> They're B- turning the frogs gay! BPAs on the lining of my chip bag! <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we need Micah here for this one. <laughs> Micah does the most uncanny, perfect Alex Jones impression ever. I almost said Bob Ross impression. <laughs> well, Luke, um, as you were saying before, uh, you have had some paranormal experiences happening to you lately. Yeah. So, what's going on? Have you? Have you? Is your is your chi out of line? I think so, man. <laughs> We're gonna have to go to one of these hipster yoga centers or something. And yeah, we'll it call out. up Gaia. That's what we'll have to do. <laughs> Learn to play pan flute. <laughs> Peruvian pan, pan flute. <laughs> that might not go over too well lately, right? Oh, uh, I missed that one. That was over my head. But <laughs> we were just talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Oh yeah, dude. <laughs> So, 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 I mean, this uh, paranormal stuff didn't exactly happen to me directly. It was uh, my girlfriend. But um, so what happened was I was making myself a band shirt. Um, the, the band shirts that are available online are too much. So I decided to go get myself some iron on transfer paper, print off a logo, you know. And so I was ironing onto the shirt. Oh, so this is an actual band that you were actually. Yeah. 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 Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I um, thought you just made it up. No. Right. It, it's it's bro job. I could say that. I mean, like that's not a that's not a cur- curse word that Rob has to edit out. So. Yeah. Um. Anywho, 
<laughs> I'm ironing on my logo, and I set the iron down to uh, cool off, and I go to uh, Thornton's to get myself a tea. Um, uh, Kira is still laying in bed. Uh, she hears this crash, and uh, she calls me up immediately. She, you know, I'm, I'm I'm on my way back from the store at that point. And she's like, uh, something just picked up the iron and threw it in the bedroom. I'm like, uh, yeah, I was like, no, that's impossible. You know, just, just leave it right there in place for, for me to get home. Let me look at it and see what's going on here. Because uh-huh. you know, I'm super skeptic about that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I get back to the house and I was trying to, you know, uh, analyze it, try to figure it out. I was thinking maybe the cat got uh, her tail stuck in a loop of the cord or something maybe and drug the iron into the spot. But uh, the the cord was facing the other direction. Like it was drugged from the closet rather than the bathroom. I mean, in, in the, the space where it started and where it ended up on the floor was just about four feet. Uh, but there, there's no way. I mean, there, there's no explanation for it. It uh, just like just like I said before, it, it she heard a thud. It hit the floor. It was enough to like wake her up. And it wasn't the cat. Mm-mm. Like you're pretty certain of that. Yeah. Like your cat barely moves. Well, I mean, she she has her spells where she likes to run back and forth uh, forth across the house, making weird sounds and stuff. But like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we we ruled that out. Um, uh, I don't I don't have any explanation crazy has anything else happened since then because this is what last monday but it is something like that okay monday tuesday <clears throat> uh no no nothing else has happened i mean i've been you know i've been messing around like i was had a conversation with you about tapping into some little bit like a psychic power i don't claim to be a psychic or anything i just uh well let's uh, talk about that a little bit well, I mean, that's, I, that's interesting it's like I'm, almost like you're remote viewing or something I, i'm always trying to experiment with stuff like that and um so i I come to find out i mean what what works for me is uh like say i I went gambling a couple years ago and i was in a a really good mood at the time like i had a good energy going whenever i went into the casino to to go gamble and play these games and it's it's almost like a a perfect equation you know I, i had just the right amount of energy i had like good confidence going in and a, a feeling it's hard to explain, you know, uh, like a feeling of like, Hey, I'm going to win today. True. You know? And I played throughout the day and I did like, I just, I won money. I won money. It was stacking up, you know, and then it starts, it started to slip away from me, started getting unsure of myself, started getting nervous. And then I started losing. So, you know, I, I knew to with, withdraw, you know, I'm smart enough to be like, Hey, uh, I better hold on to the money that I have. And so I cashed out and I made a bunch of money at the casino. And that's, it's the same kind of deal. Um, whenever I try something like that, like a guessing game, um, we had, I had all of, uh, or, or the manager had all of our tips for the night and these little manila envelopes uh, scattered out on the bar top. And they're like, a couple of my coworkers were, was like, uh, bet you can't. Pick out which one. I got 10 on it saying that you can't pick out which one is yours out of this group of like, you know, 10 different tips. And I just 
without hesitation, like I, confidence and energy, like I was talking about earlier, I just reached down and just grabbed the first one, you know, that pulled me to it and had my name on it. So I won the bet and, it, mm. you know, but I can't always do that. Like if I'm not, yeah. if not, if I'm not feeling on the top of my game, like a hundred percent and I, it doesn't work. It's almost like you just reached out and you just picked it up and without even thinking about it. Exactly. Like sometimes like, you know, um, that's how some of those tests work, you know, those like the little symbols test that they give for ESP. It's like, you know, they tell you just kind of clear your mind. Don't even think yeah. about it. If you have any kind of hesitation, second guess yourself. Now it could just be coincidence. It's possible, but I mean, that, that is interesting that, you know, that's almost, that's almost like remote viewing in a way. Yeah. Like just completely just like clearing your mind and allowing yourself just to be guided, I guess. Yeah. Or and, not, and that's, not even, and that's honestly, not even overthinking it at yeah. all, you know? It's like, I know what you mean when you get that to that, like, kind of, um, sort of an elevated sort of positivity, like, and it's not, not something you can really force. It's just every now and then you have those days where you're just, like, you're on top yeah. of the world and everything goes right, right that day, you know, Exactly. Well. There, there's all these components each day, you know, going on with you. It's like, okay, my mind is here today and my, my mind is sharp. Yeah. And then, but your body won't be, you know, your, your, your body will be lagging behind. So just every once in a while, like Rob's saying, like you, you'll have like a perfect balance where you, where you just feel good all around. Perfect equilibrium. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts of, as to what caused the iron to fall? I mean, do you have like, any idea? I, I sat there and studied the situation, just staring at it for about 30 minutes. Like I, I've got nothing. Well, when you talked to me on Monday about it, I the one thing that I said was like as far as as of right now, August 6th, it's just a one-time thing. So it's kind of like how do you explain it? You really can't. Um I think the question that I asked you was do you have any like First question I asked was, is there a teenager around? Right. you do live in an apartment complex. You live in the same apartment complex I do. Yeah. And those apartments are pretty close together. There's a bunch of teenagers. Because, because honestly, like, you know, that's one of the things, right? We talked about this with uh, Jenny Ashford and Tom Ross, you know, his experience about uh, being a kid and having poltergeist activity happen there. So it could be maybe something is there's a focus somewhere in your building. That's who the person would be. Um, it's usually a teenage. It can be girl or boy. Usually it's girls, but it can be either one. And um, so it's possible that there could be somebody there, and it just it's almost like the energy just broadcasts forth, mm-hmm. and it just comes out. Now we were thinking that it was your friend. We won't say his name, but. He's about 18, 19, so he's a little older. But uh, I, w- I was playing around with the idea that it could be some kind of residual energy. Um, the other thing would be, is there anything, like, stressful happening in maybe your girlfriend's life that maybe is causing some instability? Because here's an idea, because, you know, Jeff Ritzman um, is someone we really need to get on the show, but he talks about liminality and... Liminal, liminal, liminality is this idea that you're in between states, so you're in between things in life. 
Like you're going from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. And I know that she's kind of like changed jobs and she's kind of had a rocky road the last few weeks. And it could be, well, really last few months, but like it could be something that is like, it could be her is what I was thinking. That maybe uh, things happen because you're in this state of mind where, you know, things are not, you're in between. Um, You're in a liminal realm, liminal state. With change comes a lot of uh, transfer of energy too. So, yeah, so you could have that. You could have that energy that is that is maybe building up. I know she was relaxing at the time, but maybe she was thinking about something. Mm-hmm. So that would be the question that I would ask her, since you weren't there. And it's very un- it seems unlikely to me that there'd be a teenager that would like you know may- maybe it's maybe they are impacting the environment around, but I would think it would be somewhere very close. So she would be the one that I would look at, and I would ask her like you know what were you thinking at the time thinking about something was yeah, there something she, you were worried about was there something that you know what was going on in your head when the i right before the iron flew off the counter yeah she uh, she dreams a lot but she can never remember any of her dreams and that really that's just explained by getting a, lo- a lot of sleep like she sleeps a lot it's yeah. just an active mind you know sleeping right right so uh, those are the questions. That's that's the question I would ask. Yeah, primarily. I mean, we we uh, we bicker and argue like any couple does, but for the most part, our lives are pretty. Uh, you know, not a lot is not a lot big is going on. So nothing has happened before, and nothing has happened since. Right. If something happens again, then there might be a pattern. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's just a weird thing. And I, I seriously doubt, like. Yeah, I look at this stuff like that and think, well, that might be us. It's like an un- it's like a it's like something that is that we haven't really tapped into, but it's like a subconscious, almost like uh, Tom Ross describes it as like a cuz he has very a lot of experience with this. He describes it as like almost like a uncontrollable emotional electrical spasm that affects the environment. Right. You know, maybe Okay, here's the other thing that I would think of. Maybe, uh, you know, she was annoyed at you and your friend making the shirt. She thought it was stupid. And then that, you know, it got focused on the iron being the what you used to make the shirt, and then it flew off the counter. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm just speculating. Right, right. <clears throat> but um, I don't think it's I don't think it's the devil. <laughs> It uh, just, uh, but it'd be, be probably be cool if it was the devil. You probably, oh, enjoy absolutely. That. Man, I'd be drawing magic circles on the ground and stuff, and speaking some incantations and all that. <laughs> let's, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Rob? Um, have you had anything weird happen? Because you do have girls that are in that age range. You, you think. I do, but no, because I think that they get all, I think they vent that energy in a healthy way by complaining to me about everything and throwing fits. (laughs) I think, I think it's the the teenagers that bottle it up that, that have the poltergeist problems. I hear you. I hear you. Sounds like it's raining outside. Oh yeah. We got some nasty storms blowing around us. Oh, great. (laughs) I like the way you said that. There goes a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Probably right in the middle of Walter Bosley and it'll just go down. Yep. 
Well, we do have Walter Bosley coming on. Like I said, we're going to talk about his book, Destination Carcosa, about Ambrose Bierce. Anybody's familiar with Ambrose Bierce? If you're not, you're about to be. I know that name. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need a cricket sound effect for Luke. I know, we used to have the natural crickets outside the window. We did. We did have the natural crickets outside the window. That was a different time, my friend, on this show. Let me tell you that. All right. Uh, well, if there's anything else you want to add, uh, I think we'll just go to the guest. Um, and guys, we'll be right back on It's Paranormal, which I know is everybody's favorite podcast. Hey guys, we are back on Conspiracy Normal. I didn't let Luke introduce this time. Sorry, Luke. No, I was terrible at it anyway. You're way better. <laughs> <laughs> well, we of course are here with Rob, making making it all happen. Hello. And uh, hopefully we don't get any thunder or lightning knock us knock, knock everything out here. Yeah, it's looking pretty scary out there. Uh oh. But uh, on the line we have Mr. Walter Bosley, who has returned. I. I think this is either the sixth time i'm not i'd have to go back and count now that's how long you've been how many times you've been on this show walter wow that's cool <laughs> maybe the, maybe the fifth <laughs> cool so here we are uh we're going to talk about your book destination carcosa ambrose okay. beerus and the empire of the will so is this a empire of the will book or is this a secret or a secret missions book I think we yes. talked about that a little bit in the Patreon only episode we did not too long ago. Yeah, it is. It, it's really both. Um, it started out as Secret Missions three, and because there is indeed some overlap, I realized okay, it's kind of Empire of the Wheel four. So for a while, I was calling it that, and then in the end, I decided you know what? It, it's just so firmly, it is firmly a Secret Missions book. Um, but because there is so much Empire of the Wheel uh, touchstone to it, it's both. Um, you know, you, you have your copy. You'll notice on the spine, it's Secret Missions 3, Destination Carcosa. On the front cover, of course, you just read the subtitle, Ambrose Spears and the Empire of the Wheel. So um, I, I call it a bridge. It's the bridge between the two. Yeah, it definitely has the same elements. I mean, it has the... Uh you talk about Nimza in it, uh, the Arrow Club. Uh, mm. Hecate makes an appearance, which we all know that all she's she's pretty much the theme in all the books. Uh, she's <laughs> Lovecraft. So we kind of like get into this male you. But I think mm. the real question we need to ask, though, for everybody, yeah. is who is Ambrose Bierce? Because he is, in some ways, kind of an obscure literary figure. He's not as well known as like say right. Poe or, you know, before right. him and Lovecraft after him. Right. If you're, if you're talking to, this is truly a classic case. It, we're just at that point. There's always a point like this in history. And um, where we're at now, if you're, I would say, 
50 or older, you know who Ambrose Spears was to some degree. You, you immediately recognize the name from school, from perhaps some films and TV shows. Uh, if you're under 50, you, yeah, you aren't likely to you know pull him up that fast. But essentially, Ambrose Bierce was a primarily a 19th century author who is most famous for um, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, a short story that was made into a very uh, critically acclaimed Twilight Zone episode. Oh, really? Yes. And um, another book uh, titled The Devil's Dictionary. Now, to go further into it, he was a Civil War veteran who also wrote of his experiences in the war, both fictionally and a bit nonfiction. He wrote very little biographical, autobiographical stuff. He just didn't talk about himself that much. But a lot of his experiences, of course, can be reflected in the uh, the fiction. Um, he is considered now to be the finest writer among the Civil War veterans who became writers. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's impressive, really, um, because there, you know, are some other guys that wrote about it. But um, he, Ambrose Bierce was a journalist in San Francisco during those rip-roaring days of the Wild West in the late 19th century. And as much as he's known for the Owl Creek Bridge story and writing about the Civil War and the Devil's Dictionary and his journalism, he is also, um, in definitely in my opinion, he is also one of the most important writers in American literary history, specifically for um, supernatural uh, kind of occult horror type of stories, probably more important than he generally has been credited. And of course, you've read the book. I go into this, why I say this and why, you know, I think this. Um, But basically, if you had to, again, here's that word bridge, like the book itself, which makes it even more fitting. Um, If you had to ask who's the bridge between Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft, it is Ambrose Bierce. When you really study his writing, here's a man who I, I think half of his writings were mystical, supernatural tales. I mean, half or more of what the man wrote, and yet it's interesting that he's not more famous for that. But um, who was he? He was a very interesting guy who um, seemed to have some uh, contradictions about himself. Um, and yet did not, yet was, was uh, you know, a, a very, uh, he had integrity of who he was. He um, lived in very interesting times, and he is very famous for having disappeared in 1913, never to be heard from nor found again. Right. Yeah, that's, that's the big thing. In fact, like there's a movie uh, from Dust Till Dawn 3. That is mm-hmm. about him, which I've I've not seen the movie, but oh, you have to, particularly now that you've read the book. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about that film, uh, yeah, you got to see that. I wonder why they picked that subject for that for that film. Um, I, I would say that somewhere along the way, um, 
uh, Rodriguez and Tarantino, who I believe together originated the first film, somewhere along the way, the whole Ambrose Beers thing was in the mix. And basically, by the time they did the third one, I'm, and I'm this is a wild-ass guess, uh, you know, I would say they probably sat down with the writer and said, you know, here's this Ambrose Beers rumor, legend stuff, and we'd like to... We'd like to fit that into our thing somehow, and, and but whoever wrote it definitely was aware of you know the things I talk about in the book as far as Ambrose Bierce's disappearance and the rumors after that. He also wrote a book called or, or a short story called The Damned Thing, mm-hmm. and when I hear that, I don't know exactly what that is about. I've just always liked the title, The Damned Thing, but it now it kind of makes me think of. Um, Charles Fort, Book of the Damned. Oh, so was there, some, was there some influence there on Fort as well? Ambrose Bierce was probably Charles. Well, I'm going to say he was Charles Fort before Charles Fort. Hmm. Um, he wrote about he was. And now here's what's interesting. He was fascinated with stories of disappearances. One of the ones he was really fascinated with was, I believe, you know, the types of disappearances were those stories where, you know, somebody is walking, you know, across a field and there's people who witness this and they just, they just fade out. They just disappear. Was this or, the Oliver know, Lurch thing? I, yeah, yeah. I, I think that was, that was uh, one of them, but he was fascinated with mysterious disappearances. So I, I just think it's fantastic that he disappeared himself. Did he do it on purpose? I'm sure he did. Hmm. I'm sure he did, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, he he was interested in we, the weird, um, the reports of the strange, anything that we call Fortiana. Beers did it first, and that's another thing that he did that people just don't know. It's it's almost as if, um, with his bodily person, his legacy seemed to have disappeared. It's really, it's really strange how that worked, except for, of course, Owl Creek Bridge and um, the influence of Carcosa. Yes, yes, and we'll get to that. But I want mm. to, I'm going to ask you about how you, know, you you speculate in the book that he could have been involved in some kind of like, well, I guess military intelligence. So what's yes. kind of like, what are your ideas on that? What's kind of like the proof that you think that he was a that he might have been in? I guess working for the Secret Service or for some kind of agency at the time? Yeah, the Treasury Department primarily. Well, um, we know that during the Civil War, he um, earned a commission during the course of the war. He became a survey officer, and he did um, intelligence collections on enemy encampments. This is a fact. So we know that through studying military history, any student of military history will tell you that very often intelligence officers are put into survey because you can stand out there with, you know, your survey equipment and and be spying out in the open. Um, I wrote about this in Secret Missions 2, the um, lost expedition of Sir Richard Francis Burton. It was known that survey was the actual cover for the intelligence unit that Burton was assigned to. And that's just one example. And then and, uh, Colonel Fawcett also um, had alluded to doing intelligence work. And what was he? He was a cartographer, a, a, a survey uh, specialist, a survey officer. So we know through various examples that survey 
has been used um, to cover intelligence activities in the military um, context. And Ambrose Bierce was a survey officer. He did um, do uh, intelligence collections on enemy encampments. And right at the end of the war, he became a, uh, a, a treasury it was a it wasn't specifically his title wasn't specifically an agent at that time but what he did was he acted as a deputy agent he carried a gun he carried the id and everything he did the investigations he could apprehend but he was like a deputy uh treasury agent at the end of the war and what i argue is that uh this was his introduction into becoming a treasury agent, possibly a secret service agent, because as we know from the actual facts of his life, when he finished the Hazen expedition, which brought him to San Francisco, mm-hmm. and he allegedly had no prospects, didn't know what he was going to do because we are told that he did not get his pro- army promotion, that he just stayed in San Francisco and by golly became a clerk at the treasury department. Um, And later in his life, after he had already become a successful journalist and successful successful writer, um, he returns from England. And by golly, we're told he's got nowhere to work. And so he goes back to the Treasury Department. As I lay out in the book, from my perspective, having been a federal agent and been in the intelligence community, from my perspective, this has all the fingerprints of – having been a clue, you know, being a clue, he actually had always continued to be an employee of the Treasury Department. And that's what I hope to uh, argue with the book. So you don't think that, like, at that time, it wasn't any different for intelligence agent, how the recruitment was done? It's kind of, like, stayed the same since Beerus's time to our own? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, that you know, community he out, doesn't change very much, and it's... No, no, not much. <laughs> yeah. You know, he starts out, he's an enlisted guy. He, uh, he, he, he was, you know, he was an outstanding soldier, um, highly regarded, you know, gets his commission out in the field, is recruited into the Treasury Department, and yeah, absolutely. And if, if my theory about the, uh, the Aeron project, what I call, you know, the first you know, black technology program in the U- in U.S. history post-Civil War. If I'm correct about that, um, then this military background, then be, you know, being recruited as a Treasury agent, um, this would have been the background that would be a likely background for a guy to be selected as an agent in what we would refer to as program protection. Right. If 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 I'm right about him and he yeah. continued to be a treasury agent and it was affiliated with the airship technology development project and that was a classified program, he would be an agent that would be involved in program protection, so to speak. Um, what? Well, for, okay. For, before we get to that, but first, of all, what was the Hazen expedition? Because I think this is important to the yes. rest of the story. Uh, Colonel William B. Hazen had been. Um, when a general, I believe, had been uh, Bierce's favorite commander during the war. 
Beers had a high opinion, a high regard for Hazen. And an interesting thing about Hazen, to tell you something about his character, during the period of what they called the Indian Wars and such, um, Hazen almost ruined his career by taking on Washington and the War Department when he discovered the terrible things that they were allowing uh, contractors to do to the natives. Um, you know, all those stories you hear about the the poisoned blankets and the, the treating the natives terribly. Um, William Hazen was deeply offended by that. And he, and he this was a career army officer. Everybody likes to paint, you know, the cavalry in the U.S. Army as the, the bad guys in that. And that really was not the case. You had guys like Hazen. That were, he was just the most vocal. And he took them on. Uh, and and it darn near ruined his career, but he felt that strongly about it. And that's just a reflection of the character of this man that that Bierce had a high regard for. Um, By the way, so I, I looked up Hazen as you were talking about it. Said that uh, Wikipedia Book of Knowledge. He said the most famous service was defending Hell's Half Acre at the Battle of Stones River. In 1862, that's right down the road from us. By the way, really? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, um, Hazen also had a very high regard for Bierce, and uh, Hazen is selected to lead an expedition post-war to go check out army posts, check in with them, check them out, and do an assessment of uh, you know the frontier and in the needs of the forts and such and the like. And he handpicks Beers to be – it's interesting. The status that Beers worked on the Hazen expedition was separate from any of the other guys. Uh, I believe he um, did not have to wear a uniform if he chose not to or whenever he chose not to. And he was there kind of doing his own individual Tasks now. This uh, involved, you know, survey. That was part of it. But for all the world, um, the description of his duties when you dig into it looks like Hazen uh, handpicked Bierce to be his intelligence scout um, on this expedition. And I theorize. I go way out on a limb with a speculative theory that it was the Hazen expedition with Bierce on board that scouted the possible locations for the, the black project, the, what I call the Aaron project to establish stations for developing and testing this airship technology. It's a speculation, but I, but it, it sure does fit the, the context of my theory. Also, doesn't he go to Utah in that expedition expedition as well? Um, and there's some significance with that, like the the with the Mormons and the idea of the lost cities, which we talked oh, about yes. another with about the uh, Richard Burton as well. Right. So. Yeah. It, what's interesting is they're in Montana. They're out there. I believe they're in Montana at the time, and uh, they uh, maybe Nebraska. I'm not sure, but. Um, off the top of my head, I'd have to look in my own book. And they get orders. Um, it's interesting that the orders come to them while they're out there in the middle of the frontier. I've, I find that interesting. Um, they get orders for Hazen to immediately return to D.C. Now, he could have, you know, just headed east, 
even from Salt Lake. It was to head down to Utah to Salt Lake and then head back to D.C. Yeah, you know, he 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 could have just headed back. You know, uh, got to St. Louis as soon as possible and then taken the riverboat down and such. You know, but um, the continent's a big. You know, the planes are big, and the decision was to go down to Salt Lake and uh, kind of regroup, or resupply, and all that, and then head over to San Francisco. And then, of course, I think they took, I think Hazen took a boat around and, you know, around through Panama and then a boat up, whatever. Um, and that's how Bierce ended up in San Francisco. But what was interesting is that they, were in Salt Lake City just six or seven years after Burton was there. And you you do have Bierce fascinated with wanting to go to South America later in his life, um, which I, of course, and we'll get into later, argue is where he disappeared to. And there they spent, oh, several days in Salt Lake. Um, so it is possible that they might have seen, when I say they, I mean Bierce and Hazen and whoever else was uh, cleared for this, they might have been privy to the same uh, vaulted information that the church, the Mormon church, uh, kept that I argue Burton saw. And that, we, you know, we know for a fact that Burton spent a lot of days with Brigham Young and, and some of the other uh, guys there in Salt Lake in 1860. I argue that it's very – it's possible that Bierce, you know, might have learned some of the same stuff that Burton did. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that is interesting. I mean we talked a little bit about that, about how that the, these lost cities – but like not necessarily that the Mormons were right about what happened – but they're but they could have been keying into some kind of older tradition about these cities and that they might have been in South yeah. America, not North America. Um, well, what I say what I say in Secret Missions to the Burton book is my position on the Mormons has always been this. I am convinced that Joseph Smith found um, an ancient record, ancient information. But I think that then he used that. Um, to fabricate, you know, a religion pretty much out of whole cloth. So sure. I think, I think that, yeah, that when the Book of Mormon talks about these ancient cities, I think they're there. I, I think that part is fact. Now, whatever they, whatever they attach to it, that's reflective of their theology. Uh, that's where I stop. Um, but when they're talking about those cities and when they're talking about the technology, like the Leahona device, um, I think I think um, uh, Smith actually learned something that was true and real there. Um, so, again, this is what I speculate is, you know, in the what, you know, whatever the Mormons call their their vault Um of data, I, I don't think that Smith put what he found back in the mountain, like he claims he did. I think he hung on to it. I, I, I would guess, and this is a guess, but I would say that whatever it was Smith found, you know, what is it, about two hundred years ago, or whatever, whatever it was he found, I think is still in Salt Lake. Yeah, could be wrong, but I, I think it's still there. And this is what I'm arguing: Bierce could have learned about and seen, and. I think that's what um, led to his fascination with South America and, you know, things strange. 
Now, how do you think that he was involved with the airship milieu? We, we kind of uh, mentioned this um, on the Hazen expedition that you think that they were trying to, I guess they were looking for the ley lines that would allow the airship to travel. Yeah, that would have been part of it because as, I, as I've argued in um, uh, Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora, as I've argued in Origin, uh, my book on the breakaway civilizations and, you know, I've discussed elsewhere. Yes, I, my argument is that the telluric current of the world grid um, is what plays a role in this airship navigation. And I think as well as sites uh, that would be suitable um, to construct and, and test fly these things, um, these sites would have had a connection to this world grid energy. And I think that's part of what Bierce would have been uh, trying to identify. How do you think that he got into um, this? Like what brought him possibly oh. into, in, into this whole, the whole airship? Oh, I, I think, you know, he went to a military school when he was a teenager and he learned survey and cartography and such there. Right. Um, and then in the army, I think he, I think he learned it in the army. You got to remember there was telegraph, you know, telegraph came hand in hand with the railroads. There were railroads in those days. And I, I talk about this in other books as well, that the railroad telegraphers are well aware of telluric current. It's a very real thing. They've been tapping into it since the mid 19th century. And I think that's where Bierce learned about it was his training as a survey intelligence officer. And there you go. To me, it's in my mind, it's simply that's, that's where he learned it. And, you know, that was his role on the Hazen expedition. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think there's something to be, to be said, to be said for that. I find the whole airship thing is fascinating anyway. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you've really, I mean, that, the origin book just really kind of opened my eyes on a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I'm always for explaining things in a non extraterrestrial hypothesis means. So there we go. Um, let's get into the, into the Carcosa thing, because I think this connects to his, what you speculate about his travels in Central America and South America, which we'll get to, but mm -hmm. the Carcosa, this whole mythos, and of course, this is something that I wasn't aware of until the True Detective season one, mm -hmm. the Carcosa. And after our conversation that we have on Patreon with you, I went back immediately and started watching season one of True Detective, and mm -hmm. I caught so much more this this time because it's because oh, yeah. it's one thing because like the first time I watched it, I watched it in like you know week to week. Watching it back to back, there's so much more that you catch, um, right. and I think the whole Carcosa thing almost went under the radar for me a little bit. But mm -hmm. let's talk about the, how, how what True Detective builds on and what the, their source material builds on. Of course, it stems back right. to Beers. Yes, it does. Um, True Detective, anytime it references, uh, and it does throughout, uh, something called the. Yellow King, mm -hmm. and of course, Carcosa. This is a reference to one of the great masterpieces of supernatural slash horror literature, and I mean true literature, uh, written by a man named Robert W. Chambers. 
And it was a book titled The King in Yellow. It was written in the 1890s. And it used an interesting device, um, something that Stoker used through half of Dracula, and that is this. This mysterious king in yellow, or the yellow king, is never really seen in Chambers' book. He is referred to. He is alluded to. Um, in one particular story, you learn that there's a play. This play tells the story, the history of the genealogies of the king in yellow and the mysterious uh, royal family of Carcosa. And to see this entire play is to go mad because of what it <laughs> reveals. <laughs> it's this really great mysterious stuff. Now, if you've watched True Detective, of course, um, you realize that even though by the end of that, and I don't think I'm giving anything away, I won't say too much, by the end of it, they they get Errol Childress, of course. But you, you come away knowing that and and they know. I think Marty and and Russ know that they have not nearly, you know, caught all the perpetrators. They they've not caught the Yellow King. There's a wonderful. And I think we talked about this last time. There's that wonderful scene in the interrogation room where the the shifty guy that they've caught for something, um, you know, he he's he's desperate to make a deal. So in that that kind of whispered voice, he says to Rust. You know, I, I I can tell you things. I I know about the Yellow King and, and right. Russ. You know, it makes his blood go cold. And he goes, "What do you mean? That case is closed." You know, and and but when he mentions the Yellow King, it, and that right there, when you watch that scene, I'm getting goosebumps talking about. It. That's how much it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, yeah, that was we, a powerful scene. Because, yeah, because the thing was that they had killed like those two guys and the the two yes, meth heads they, that yeah. uh, they thought were the killers. They killed Reginald Ledoux and yeah. his associate. And yeah. uh, but here's the thing: that scene in the interrogation room, the guy that says, "I know about the the, the Yellow King," um, that captures the essence of the Chambers masterpiece from the 1890s. Now, now, when I say a masterpiece, a lot of people that you know they read horror fiction, they're like, "Well, who's Robert Dumber, Robert W. Chambers? Mm-hmm. I've never heard of this King." I had never heard of him until you told me about yeah. him. Yeah. Except True Detective, if they've seen it. Well, here's the interesting thing: you you can go back um, uh, to the book Dance Macabre by Stephen King and and any other modern horror writer, and that these guys of that late 20th century, you know, period, they would just sing the praises of Chambers and this King in Yellow. That's where I first heard about it. Was in 79, 80, and it was this mysterious tome which you know you couldn't find, but they had the highest regard, and uh, even Lovecraft was very much influenced by Chambers' uh, King in Yellow books. So it was one of those seminal books that had a deep impact on all the other authors at the time and has resonated through American um, supernatural, uh, you know, in, in horror occult literature. And what's interesting is what most people don't know, even if they're up on Chambers in the King in Yellow, is the land of Carcosa and this mysterious place on the liminal edge of reality was first written about and conceived in literature by Ambrose Bierce, particularly with one story titled An Inhabitant of Carcosa. With that story, An Inhabitant of Carcosa, Ambrose Bierce may possibly be credited with really the creation of the idea of the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits. Even yeah. more so than Poe or Lovecraft. 
Now, what is Beerus's story about? Beerus's story, it's actually a pretty short story. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that it will feel familiar to people, but it was the first of its kind. A guy basically wakes up after an illness. It's, a, it's nighttime, but he can see clearly. It's very odd. Um, it's nighttime, but not. And uh, basically, it's similar to Dickens, but weirder, in that he realizes that he's dead. He eventually finds his own gravesite, and there's this this mysterious, the ruins of a mysterious ancient city, his homeland called Carcosa, okay? And you find out at the end that the story has been related uh, via a, a kind of a sleeping psychic, and it's the story of a man from ancient times. And telling about the story like this doesn't do it justice. You really have to read it and you understand what really fully what kind of story it is. But basically it's just a weird mood piece that um, was greatly responsible for an entire genre, but is mostly little known except to weirdo scholars like me. (laughs) Now, does he base Carcosa off a real place? Well, that's just it. Um, it, Some people say yes, you know, that he had, uh, you know, being a student of ancient history and geography and such that, you know, he he had his inspirations. But as far as the Carcosa that he envisions, you you almost get the feeling that it was a place that maybe he got glimpses of in his mind. Remember, he was into what would become later called Fortiana. He was fascinated with, you know, the dis- stories of disappearances. So, and, and Beers was not the guy that would get too much into his own medicine publicly. He would not talk about, in other words, Stephen King has written Dance Macabre and a couple of other books on writing and his writing process, and they're great reads. But Beers was not that guy. Beers was not the guy that would get into really why he wrote what. Um, so we're really just left to try and guess and feel our way through via the stories themselves. But it could be that this was uh, a result of, you know, his ruminations on these disappearances. You know, did did somebody slip between dimensions and they ended up in what he would call Carcosa? Um, it's it's interesting to speculate. The fact that the man really was so close to vest about himself just lends to the general mystery of, you know, his life and his disappearance. Well, let's get into the disappearance. Um, yes. When does this happen? I mean, what I mean, what is said to have happened, and what do you think actually happened? Well, and this will be interesting to Empire of the Wheel fans who know know the little interesting synchronicity about the a per, the period of fifty years. Okay, what I'm about to say is um, when Beers was seventy one years old on. October, the, the 2nd of October, 1913, 50 years to the day before I was born. <laughs> really? I had an interesting synchronicity, yeah. Um, 50 years to the day of my birth, 
Ambrose Bierce departs Washington, D.C. on his journey that ends in his disappearance. And he, he revisits all his old Civil War battlefields heading south out of D.C. Um, and then he heads west. He goes into uh, El Paso. And from El Paso, he crosses south into Mexico. And the last he's heard from is a letter uh, mailed um, – I'm doing a brain dump on the name of the city. I don't know. Maybe it's Chihuahua City um, or Oinaga. I'm sorry. I believe it might have been mailed from Oinaga. I'm going off the top of my head here. Um, somewhere in northern Mexico. You would somewhere say, in northern so. Mexico. He mails a letter to his uh, secretary, um, we are told. And that's the and that's in December of 1913, and that's the last anyone hears from him, and he is never seen. Um, there are rumors that he was riding with Pancho Villa. Uh, these are just rumors. Um, Villa himself never mentioned in anything after that. Um, having right, because the Mexican Revolution's going on at that time. The Mexican Revolution yeah. is going on at that time, and Ambrose Bierce was not an obscure stranger back then. Okay, he was a known person. Um, he was a bit of an American celebrity. So, you know, Via would certainly have, and there were other people who were writing with Via at the time, F.A. Mitchell Hedges, for one, who never mentioned Beers in that context. So the whole theory that he rode with Via and then subsequently was killed during the war, this, is, this has all been based on just assumption and speculation, because he had made an offhanded comment about, you know, hey, there's worse ways to end your life than riding down into the the war in Mexico and getting shot, you know, as a gringo or whatever. You know, he, he would make that offhanded comment. Um, and no remains were ever found. There is a village that claims his remains are buried there, but they essentially just put a grave marker there. They have no evidence, um, nothing at all to prove that Ambrose Bierce was buried there. It's very doubtful. Um, and really the whole assumption that people tend to make that he died in Mexico is just that it's very weak, very thin. Um, and they seem to ignore that, you know, he probably made it to South America, which was his intention. That was his intended goal, stated multiple times between personal letters and public interviews. And yet, no Beers theorists ever ever go there. I think I'm the first one to really go there um, to any degree. What would he have been doing in South America? Uh, what, was he, what, what do you think he would have been looking for? Oh, I think... Um, Based on his personal interests, and if let's say my speculation is right that he was involved with uh, the you know the airship mystery milieu, um, think of the things he probably would have been aware of that would have theoretically, of course, then associated with these um, ancient cities of these lost civilizations. I would say, you know. A, very much the same thing that that Burton was looking for. He probably wanted to see the ancient ruins. He probably wanted to look into, you know, um, some of the stranger aspects, um, the the ancient legends and such. And you know, basically, 
I think he wanted to just go finish living his days down there, feeling like he was on an adventure, feeling like he was really alive. He, you know, he had the reputation, you know, for being a cranky old guy. He was called Bitter Beers. <laughs> What's interesting is that people who were his friends said he was, could be, you know, he was the kindest, most generous man, um, very courteous, uh, uh, as much as, um, you know, you could say on the one hand that he, he might have even been a misogynist. Women adored him. I mean, he was he was a good looking guy. He was a charmer. Women loved him. Um, he was a man who p- appeared to be contradictory, but actually people who knew him said that's not it at all. What it is, is he quartered no bullshit. Mm-hmm. He showed no mercy to BS artists and fakes. And, you know, if if you were an honest broker, he was a courteous, you know, guy that would treat you with the utmost respect. He was a gentleman. He's very much like um, Michael Parks uh, portrays him in From Dust Hold On Three. Um, you know, the the dapper gentleman who was damn good with a pistol um, and a tough guy. I mean, when you read what other people said he did during the war, this was not a guy to mess with. And I honestly think that this last thing was one big, wonderful adventure for him to end his life on. And, you know, no matter what he said, I think he was perfectly fine with just disappearing. In fact, I would say he did that on purpose. Right, because he was so interested in that earlier in his life and people disappearing and – yeah, well, yeah, right. and 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 also the other part of it was, you know, he had made comments to his daughter one time. His daughter talked about this. They were sitting on the front porch of her house when he visited her, and he pointed to somebody that was about 10 years older than him. Now, they say even when he was 70, he was actually, other than the white hair, they said that, you know, he's a pretty robust, healthy guy. But he would point to old people shuffling along to his daughter and say, I, that will not be me. You will never see me. Mm being that way. And I think that was part of it. He wanted to be remembered vibrant and alive. And, you know, he just didn't want to have anyone go through seeing him wither and, and die. And, uh, you know, kind of I have, a Hemingway-esque, you know? Yeah. And, and if he actually went out, you know, guns blazing or, you know, uh, in some adventurous way, that wouldn't surprise me either. But uh, it wasn't in Mexico during the Mexican War, in my opinion. Hell, the man survived the entire Civil War. I mean, right. <laughs> and the well, Civil you know, War the was pretty brutal. The interesting thing about the Mexican War down there is it was going on, and and this is enlightening to me because I remember when I wrote Empire of the Wheel and I did the research with the uh, railroad historians. You know, they were diverting all the railroad passenger railroad traffic in the United States from the border. If you were going, you know, from from the West Coast to the East Coast or vice versa, they wouldn't let you go on the southernmost rail. They were channeling everything, you know, through what is now like where Highway 40 is, you know, northern New Mexico, northern Arizona, and in through San Bernardino. Um, because, you know, ooh, the Mexican War, they didn't want to have their, you know, their trains going too close to the border down there. Now, yeah. what's interesting is... Well, uh, Villa was I, raiding into the United States. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but what's what's interesting is when I did the research for this book, the Mexican National Railway, Railways were still running. They were running passenger service. And what was interesting was the, um, the, the, the military uh, did a really good job keeping the civilian passenger service out of the fray. And what's interesting is is the opposing factions were not dragging the civilian 
tourist traffic into you know their stuff. They were stealing government trains that were supply trains. They were stealing you know a, you know stuff that, that was military you know kind of thing. And the military did their best to protect their own trains to move troops. My point is, um, the railroads were still running. The passenger rail was still running, and beers. I think it's very possible that you know, he, he hopped a train somewhere probably in Chihuahua City and really mostly rode, you know, the railroad existed, which more than I think people realized um, back then, down in Central America. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you could easily, he could have easily have done that and then caught a ship somewhere into South America. Yeah. It was pretty easy yeah. to now, do I at do that think- time period. I, I do think he did a little uh, sightseeing while he was down there, of course, and I go into that in the book. I think he saw some of the ancient sites there. Now, another speculation in the book, to go back and answer your question even more about what I think he was doing down there, South America and in and, and, and Mexico and Central America, is possibly collecting on the Prussian Nimza and whatever they were doing down there. And like I said, I get into that in the book. So it was a little bit of, uh, you know, a very much a personal trip, but also, you know, doing some duty as an intelligence officer, I think. There's the Germans again, Rob. Your favorite. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they, well, they always pop up. Yeah. The Germans They're are ever- starting to pop up just about as much as Crowley on this show. I know. So. <laughs> 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 they got their hands in everything. Yes, they do. Uh, yes, but, they did. But there's also this connection um, with the crystal skulls that is interesting, oh, yeah. too. And you don't, you know, you, you you make no bones about saying the crystal skulls are not an ancient thing. They are a modern thing. But uh, yeah, there's he, an interesting connection there. Yeah, you know, um, Anne Mitchell Hedges' story, you know, F.A. Mitchell Hedges' daughter, um, it's pretty much been demonstrated that you know she was bluffing people and and making stuff up this is that she found it when she was a little girl inside yeah, some mayan city Ubuntum. yeah it, uh, it was you know that's pretty much been proven and and you know because f.a mitchell hedges didn't really talk about even having the skull until decades after he allegedly you know according to her had found it and a gentleman by the name of nick nosarino who's talked about in the David Childress uh, and Stephen Meller book, The Crystal Skulls, you know, even he um, had done some research and pretty much concluded that it had been made uh, by German crystal artisans um, in a specific area of um, uh, uh, Eidar Oberstein in Germany um, in the, you know, what was it, the late, mid to late 19th century. So, yeah, this famous crystal skull, when we refer to the crystal skull, we're talking about the F.A. Mitchell Hedges crystal skull. Um, And, uh, you know, so this thing, even though it wasn't what Anne said it was, claimed it to be, um, it actually has a pretty fascinating uh, alternate history that is more likely – um, short of, of course, you know, the, the, the war, more wilder speculations, including my own. Um, and uh, it is possible that Bierce could have been involved um, in either the capture of that skull or, or, you know, on the periphery of people involved 
with the use of it and such. And, and it could have very well have involved um, German agents that he was looking at. Yeah. Uh, what do you think they would have been using those for? I mean, what was the purpose of making well, those? As I, as I say in the book, it could have been something that they, they could use as some type of, and again, folks, here comes a speculation, as kind of a, for, for, to put it in a, to come up with an analogy that people today will understand, it could have been um, like a, uh, uh, oh my gosh, the things people use to find old coins. What is that? The, the, they wave it around. Gosh darn it, I'm doing a brain dump. But let's Talk jump. About dowsing? Not dowsing, but the, Just uh, the metal detectors. Metal detector. Thank you very much. They could have used it much like we use a metal detector, or even better in today's parlance, a GPS, where you know the the skull might might have there might have been something that when they got near some type of telluric or electromagnetic um, signal or or energy emanation, you know the skull would have done something. Um. Because yeah, they're and, made out of quartz, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's my speculation that it could have been, you know, to help them find the the lost cities. Because, you know, uh, perhaps what they knew about the technology of these lost cities may be something in the city, even after all this time, emanated, uh, you know, some type of um, uh, vibration or, or, you know, remaining – existence signal i'm i apologize i my mental thesaurus and dictionaries <laughs> flown out of my head right now i can't think of the right words they, they made it into but, a skull probably because of some weird german freemasonry thing you know probably yeah who knows that see that's the part honestly that yeah. uh, it, unless it's in the book and i've forgotten what i said <laughs> off the top of my head that's the part that you got to go okay why a skull why couldn't they just make it a ball or just a little cube or something but you know, for whatever reason. And uh, what, what's interesting about this is um, how I learned about it. Um, I was reading the, when I was searching the Burton book, I was reading the children's book on the Crystal Skulls, and there it mentions a 1972 book, which is really no more than a pamphlet, Ambrose Bierce and F.A. Mitchell Hedges and the Crystal Skull. I thought, whoa, that's interesting. I never heard of this. So I go to look it up online to see if I can get a copy, and I can't find it anywhere. I find one copy in the whole world available, and it's at a library. And what blows my mind, here comes synchronicity again. On this whole planet, this entire planet Earth, the one library I can find where this is at is right down the road from me at the University of California in Riverside. <laughs> so I run over there, and I that was my first look at the book, was looking at it in the library, and I made notes, and I just kind of put it aside. And then when I started to write the Beers book, what was interesting was I found it in a couple more places on the internet and a copy available. So I ordered my copy, I got it, and I was able to really study it and uh, read it. And... Um, What's really interesting about my copy is I like to joke and call it the Vero edition, and you can your listeners can look up the Philadelphia Experiment and and um, uh, Morris Jessup and Carlos Allende to know what I mean by the Vero edition. But it had all these marginal comments all over the book. Yeah, I know between, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, this, this book on beers that I ordered, the one that I received, my copy that I bought. It has a bunch of marginal converse. It's like a marginal conversation between two other people, and they're talking about 
scientific and technical details of the crystal skulls and such kind of you know filling in the 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 blanks and and extrapolating on what's actually in the book and you know i was i was blown away by that i don't go into that in the beer's book that's just kind of an aside but um it's interesting that this author of this book um sibley morrill is his name was his name uh, he's really the first guy to say that Bierce was an intelligence agent, you know, and that's kind of what made me look closer and realize as I looked at his military career and, and when I learned that he'd been a treasury agent, you know, think about what I have proposed about at a place, you know, I, it, that just blew my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, here's another guy who came to a mysterious end and there he was a matter of history, a treasury agent. Um, so I think, as I say in my book, I think Sibley Morrill was on to something. Um, whoever he actually was or wherever he ended up, I would like to know. Um, because his book, like I said, it's a short pamphlet kind of book, very uh, inexpensively published. It's a 1972 copy that I have um, or a copy of that. And it's really just kind of – you got to look for it. It's – kind of you know fallen off the radar well did you not but, take it back to the library pardon did you take it back to the library oh no no i bought a copy remember okay. i went to the library to look at their copy and then between that time and when i started writing the beers book i found more copies online oh, and excellent. I, one okay. that I could purchase see and the one i received was the one that had all these um marginal uh, dialogues going on of all the ones yeah. that you could get, you got that one. That's exactly. that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so, you know, I just chalked it up to you know when these things happen, particularly the synchronicity that he departed on his last famous disappearance voyage, fifty years to the day of my birth, and this whole thing I just went through regarding this particular book. Uh, personally, I say, okay, I'm supposed to write this book. <laughs> this is definitely I'm on the right track with when weird stuff like that happens. I need to tell this story and and you know that's that's kind of background stuff. I you'll know I, I never go into the personal stuff in that regard in the books because that's sure. the book isn't about me. But it's it's interesting to share that. Um you know, because it, it just adds to the whole mystery, I think. You also speculate in there about some about an actual link between Beerus and Lovecraft. Um, I guess the link is Robert Barlow. Robert Barlow and Clark Ashton Smith. You familiar with Clark Ashton Smith? Not as much. Not outside of your book. Yeah, um, Smith is a legend in supernatural literature in the early to mid twentieth century. And he was one of the famous, well-known to weirdos like me who love this kind of stuff. Um, there were a trio of writers who corresponded, and their correspondence was kind of, you know, famous, you know, to nerds into this. That was Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and Smith, and they were correspondents, would share ideas and such. Um, uh, Smith and Howard wrote in in the uh, Cthulhu mythos. Um, Lovecraft wrote in you know Smith's world, 
and they both wrote, of course, in Howard's world. It was interesting. They would all share ideas and in fictional milieus. And so, you know, Clark Ashton Smith was very much a friend and associate of Lovecraft. And um, Robert Barlow was the young man who Lovecraft befriended he and his family when Barlow was a kid. And um, Barlow, you know, himself wrote a few things and ended up being the executor of Lovecraft's literary estate when Lovecraft died. That's how much uh, Lovecraft regarded Barlow. Barlow goes on to become a highly regarded archaeologist, Mm -hmm. and his specialty is in the ancient civilizations of Mexico and Central America. Um, What's interesting, too, is he goes and visits Clark Ashton Smith. This is after Lovecraft died and before Barlow died, obviously, Um, not long before. He goes to visit Clark Ashton Smith, and who knows what really, you know, they discussed. But um, Clark Ashton Smith, at uh, one time when he was very young, he was reviewed by Ambrose Bierce. He was supposed to meet Bierce because he was a, a kind of a discovery of George Sterling, who was a poet who at one time had been Bierce's protege. And Sterling was hoping to uh, introduce Bierce to Smith. And um, it was supposed to happen. Smith wasn't able to make the meeting to get over to San Francisco, and it never happened. But Bierce uh, commented a couple of times about Smith's writing when Smith was very young. And uh, what's interesting is who knows, you know, what kind of influence there would have been had the two met. But, um, you know, there we have the milieus literally overlapping, right? So I speculate in my book, what did Barlow know about Bierce's disappearance through his father, who had served during the Mexican War in Pershing's army, um, possibly. And what did Smith know, you know, about stuff to do with Lovecraft that, you know, Barlow might wanted to have known further? And, you know, was this meeting kind of a summit to share, you know, stuff? Because Smith wrote a couple of stories that reflect, um, you know, a curiosity about Bierce's disappearance, possibly. So, you know, it's just, it's one of those what if kind of situations. What, you know, to have been a fly on the wall when Barlow met Clark Ashton Smith would have been very interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much of this that you just have to really wonder you know, how these people are connected, especially like with Lovecraft's fiction. I mean, it's very similar in some of these ideas, these ancient, ancient cities. And, you know, Rob's nodding his head because he's re- actually read Lovecraft. I haven't. I love Lovecraft. I've read everything he ever did. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. But there's similar it, it, themes, you know, in, oh, yeah. in some of the stuff that you talk about. Of course, you talk about Lovecraft a lot in the uh, Empire of the Will 3. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Is there a link with Beerus to uh, the San Bernardino working of 1915? 
Of course, you know, this is two years after he disappears. Yes, it's two years after he disappears. But uh, what I propose in the book is based on the documented fact that his father-in-law had been involved with um, mining, okay, uh, down in San Bernardino County. When his father-in-law passed away, uh, Captain Day was his name, uh, Bierce's wife was named Molly Day. Um, when Captain Day passed away, Bierce uh, went down to Southern California and had, he helped um, deal with um, estate issues. So there we have a reason for Bierce to have physically had to go, have to go to um, San Bernardino, California um, in the early 20th century, not too long before, you know, he, he disappears. Um, and the fact that San Bernardino was really a garden spot, it's not, you know, people make jokes about San Bernardino because, you know, it really has fallen from its glory days, but it actually had glory days. It was, as I talk about in the Empire of the Will trilogy, it was this wonderful place that was very popular. Um, That's I, the Inland Empire moniker. Yeah, well, yeah, and then, yeah. of course, that I think came from F. Lewis Clark, and that's a whole other part of the Empire of the Wheel thing. But um, yeah, absolutely, it, it was this garden spot. So, I, see, I don't think that when uh, Captain Day died, that would have been the only time that Ambrose Beers ever went to San Bernardino. Um, the, the fact that Day had a gold mine and was involved in mining in San Bernardino County, and Beers himself had worked in the gold mining industry, there you go. There's our thread to uh, uh, rightfully speculate, okay, um, on how involved Beers might have been in helping Day with this mining venture that he was involved in. For all we know, Beers could have gone, you know, come down here. I can say here, I live right here in this valley. Beers could have come down here a lot. Um, and there we go. If he was coming down here, and when you look at his interests, when you look at what I speculate about him as far as being involved in intelligence and stuff, and you've read the Empire of the Wheel books, and you see all these milieu connections, you begin to see where, okay, uh, Walter's not completely nuts. Um, <laughs> there may be something here to build the suggestion that Bierce was aware of some you know, shenanigans connected with the Empire of the Wheel stuff. Um, so that's the obvious connection, you know, the, the, the issue of the family connection to San Bernardino County. And that's a matter of historical record. Turning back a little bit to uh, True Detective, uh -huh. the whole idea of Carcosa, you know, that yeah. that is based on, uh, I've heard that it's based off the, um, what is it, the church? The Ponchatula. Uh, yeah, Ponchatula. Yeah. Is that it, Ponchatula? Or? Yeah, okay. I think so. Um, but the church where there were all these weird cult activities going on and kids oh, with kids and stuff. Yeah. Disturbing, awful stuff. That's really, really disturbing to read, particularly what they confess to with their own children. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we talked a lot about 
I'll bring it up again, the whole Pizzagate thing. Yeah. We talked about a lot about that stuff earlier this year, and we've kind of stopped talking about it because until there's any kind of like any break sure. in it, there's really it's really not worth to really right. talk about or even speculate as far as the whole Pizzagate thing is. But, I mean, do you think that these kind of, these kind of elite occultic activities, do you think that they, that they exist? I mean, you definitely do because of San Bernardino and, and what you speculate in that. But do you think that there is so much more to it with that case, the Ponchatoula case, that, uh, and then what is, you know, the, what is kind of like the fiction that is true detective? You know, yeah. is that based on some some fact here is this kind of stuff still going on uh i think that like in the show where we said i said earlier that you definitely come away with the feeling that you know they got the one guy but they didn't they they didn't get that yellow king they didn't yeah. get the the big people yeah i think i think something is going on along these lines i think you've got some people on very powerful elite levels and they know exactly who they are um, right. who are doing these heinous things and they know why they're doing it. Um, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's going on. The specifics, I, you know, I, I, I can't say, but if, if like, it, you know, I like to say that when you hear stories that seem wow or over the top, that there's a nugget of truth in there. Mm-hmm. So, when you hear Pizzagate, when you hear about Ponchatoula and, and all this stuff, it, you know, whatever the nugget is, it's bad. And yeah. these people are willing to killing to protect what, it, you know, their involvement and other things is, is no problem to them. Yeah. And I, and I think it's very under the radar. Like you would never, obviously in 1915, you want to know about it. And you can kind of get a glimpse of it now, but uh, it's still kind of, it's, it's, it's still very shadowy and very, very under the cover. If you recall in Empire of the Wheel 3, when I talk about Gordon Northcutt and the Wineville chicken coop murders, you know, initially when he's arrested, he's panicking and he tells, uh, I believe, uh, an assistant DA or a prosecutor or whatever and another witness he says he was he was kidnapping young boys to be used by very wealthy men in riverside california and and on and on and so forth and then when they were done with them they would just hand them off to him and he could do whatever he wanted and he would kill them and and then he shut up he quit he quit saying anything now that Uh, was portrayed in i think in the movie um changeling well, right. Yeah, the thing was portrayed, but the movie was more about the mom than it was about the case. Sure, sure. So there's things about the case that it, it just didn't cover, and you know, I find that curious. I'm wondering if, you know, they just decided not to go there, yeah, um, because of what we're hearing about now. You know, maybe maybe someone, you know, told Eastwood or whoever. Okay, you can go there, but you ain't going here. You know, um, I don't know. That's fun to speculate in a dark way, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, as I said, I get into that in Empire of the Wheel three. So yes, I'm convinced to answer your question that uh, these things go on. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, we, we just finished talking to Robert W. Sullivan. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a Freemason. Mm-hmm. And we kind of talked about how, you know, he looked at some of this uh, anti-Freemasonry stuff that you see online and how much that a lot of it he felt was BS because he said, you know, Freemasons don't worship Lucifer. I think this right. is something other than Freemasonry. I think Freemasonry, oh, Illuminati get blamed for it. But I think this right. is something much deeper, much older, something oh, that yes. is something that is based in some kind of weird paganism. And if you think yep. about, you know, Beers possibly going down to um, Mexico and seeing the, the Mayan ruins, I mean, well, that was the place where all kinds of human sacrifice was going on. So oh, there's, there, I, I think that there's a link to some really, some real old shit. <laughs> Older well, than also Freemasonry. Think, think of what Malachi Martin had uh, yeah. talked about was in the Catholic Church with Vatican II. You know, he wrote that novel, Windswept House, which in a mm-hmm. fictional way kind of goes into these kind of guys having really infiltrated, uh, you know, um, the Vatican. And so, you know, if there's anything to that, that shows you, you know, how powerful. And think about it. You just said something that we have a connection historically between the Vatican and ancient Mexico, right? When we're talking the Spanish conquest, perhaps, you know, certain Vatican people got uh, introduced or turned on to some of this dark stuff while in the new world, Yeah, you know? Uh, there's something that there's a book right there. Um, we you know we talked about uh, again referring back to our Patreon episode. We talked about and and if everybody wants to hear that, they need to join Patreon. Um, that's my little plug for Patreon. But uh, <laughs> we talked about Santa Muerte <clears throat> and yes. how that's a big thing now. And basically, I mean, people, you have sacrifices to Santa Merte, you know, the, the Mexican drug cartels, um, uh, and in the link to Santa Merte to, uh, Hecate and these mm-hmm. chthonic deities and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. The more I look into this stuff, the, the scarier it becomes. And I, sometimes I have to back away from it. I just, I can't, <laughs> well, you know, there's well, some scary shit. The reason that one of the big reasons why I started doing the Secret Missions book was I wanted to take a break from the Empire of the Wheel yeah. research. Um, <laughs> uh, because, it, it, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I have not and will not talk about publicly that I stumbled upon, I found, I experienced while researching and investigating those books. Um, I had people following me from my house one day, um, yeah, I had kind of oblique approaches, people letting me know in coy ways that they were watching my moves by describing my moves, you know, pretending to talk about a third person. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Very interesting things. Marks on my lawn that were distinct, you know, symbols. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) These are things that I know some people say, well, that's the real story. That's the real story. But um, I have my reasons for you know, not sharing certain things. Um, part of it is I prefer in the books to present stuff other than about me, for one, and stuff that I can hopefully point 
to either documentation or you know some type of actual real historical context to you know kind of corroborate what it is I'm trying to say. But um, that doesn't mean the weird stuff doesn't happen. Um, just like when you know you've heard me talk about breakaway civilization and secret space programs and all the stuff I talk about in Origin and stuff, that doesn't mean that I dismiss extraterrestrials. I absolutely am convinced that extraterrestrials are out there and come to this planet. So, you know, it's uh, just what you choose to be discussing at the at the moment, but it doesn't exclude the other possibilities necessary. But are there blue avians? <laughs> no, I think that's a load of unmitigated horse shit. <laughs> I can't remember what that reference is. I know we talked about it recently. Yeah, well, we're going to get into that. We'll, okay. we'll get into it. Um Let's talk about the blue avians because I've been waiting to get you on to talk yes. about this because um, I know this is something else that you've been a big kick on right now with it, which yeah. uh, you, you have definitive proof that blue avians were at Roswell in 1947. Um, <laughs> I've seen the pictures. Yes. Anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about. If you go to Walter's YouTube channel, you can see the definitive proof, the Corey good stuff. Yeah. Now on the last show, I read about an article from the Atlantic about the Nazca mummies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Gaia is pushing this hard. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know where Gaia came from all of a sudden, but they are everywhere now. And there's another aspect of, of what Gaia is doing is pushing this Corey good guy. So who is this guy? But, before you answer that, uh-huh. we had a guy on our show a couple of years ago named Captain K, who claimed that he was a super soldier on Mars. And when I heard about Corey Good, which has only been a couple of weeks, three weeks ago now, heard about it on really? Greg Bishop's show. Yeah, I never made the connection. Uh, but he was talking to a guy that was uh, left MUFON because he was so disgusted with the direction oh, that Clarkson. they're going. Yeah. yeah Clarkson. Clarkson. Yeah. yeah. And it's so he had, um, but this guy, captain K claimed that he was a super soldier on Mars, genetically engineered yeah. time travel was involved. Um, he missed his Betty Lou, which was his rail gun. Uh, so when Corey good, I heard about Corey good and what he was saying, I thought, Oh, captain K must've come out and told him what his real name was. But, uh, <laughs> That's not true. So I think Corey Good has stolen Captain K's stick. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think he borrows and lifts. You know, a lot of them borrow and lift from uh, other things. And and I, I basically I think all these stories of these commandos on Mars, uh, it's it's all BS. Um, what what we've got is. And some people would say, wow, coming from Walter Bosley, that must really be a load of BS. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, what we've got here is the age-old thing that the contactee movement in the 50s did with UFOs, where it's the circus, it's the it's for the goofy people, the people that want to turn everything into, you know, a religion. They're looking to replace traditional religion with something new to just simply believe in. And this is really a byproduct of the contactee only they uh, movement only they call themselves experiencers. Now there are people that are experiencers like Mike Cleland, 
Yeah, I actually like that term. I have no problem with that term. Yeah, that's a good term. And and Mike, I say Mike Clellan. um, You know, I I think he's sincerely, you know, the real thing. Oh, he is. He is the things he talks about. Um, You know, and and I say that because I've experienced some of the same things he had. So I can only, you know, uh, you know, I'll just throw that out there. But. we're talking about you know the these experiencers that are, are coming out and claiming to be whistleblowers um, on a program that they can't prove other than this is their evidence that they 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 say well this is a bona fide program and I'm telling you it's bona fide because I was part of it and I say it was bona fide so therefore I mean think about that <laughs> for you don't even have to think about it it's it's ridiculous the minute it comes out of their mouth and that's essentially. Yeah. You know him and Basaggio, uh, Basago, whatever, however you pronounce the name, Andrew. Another Basiago. another time traveler, yeah. Yeah, another supposed time traveler from the you know from childhood and and um, you know it's just it 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 boggles the mind that there's enough people to embrace this. And what bothered me in the interview you mentioned. Um, on Greg Bishop's show with Clarkson is that Clarkson made a comment that Corey good is the primary advocate of the secret space program field. And I, I just about my, my skull cap blasted to the moon when he <laughs> said that because no, no, no. And all it did was show, you know, that, the serious UFO investigators really need to bring themselves up to speed on the, the actual secret space program research. um, If that's what Clarkson thinks, because he's not a dumb guy, he's a real, you know, researcher. Okay. He's a serious, you know, researcher, a former investigator and, and, you know, uh, and, and so, you know, I think if he were to bring himself up to speed, he would probably retract that statement. He'd realize that no, what Corey Good and his ilk are are usurpers. Okay, they've usurped the secret space program uh, thing for their nonsense. Because you've got people like Joseph Farrell, Catherine Austin Fitz, um, uh, Michael Schratt, uh, Mark McCandlish, Richard Dolan, Olaf Phillips, myself. I humbly mm-hmm. throw in there. Um, you know, John Brandenburg and others who are much more serious researchers that actually, before I came along, laid the foundation for the serious research on a secret space program and all this stuff. And then these knuckleheads come along <laughs> and they put on such a show and they get the money backing and they get the, the you know, the media within our little field. They get all that backing um, and and then we end up with, you know, otherwise serious investigators saying stuff like Corey Good is the primary advocate of the secret space program field. It's just it's heartbreaking. It's aggravating and it's annoying and it's flat out not true. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what are the blue avians? What, what, what is he claiming here? Who are these? Okay, Corey Good, Corey Good, in a nutshell, for those who don't know, um, he claims that at 16 years old, he was taken um, to, uh, I guess, outer space 
um, where he was trained to be a special forces commando who fought um, in in wars against extraterrestrials. I, for some reason, I'm thinking reptilians, but it might not have been reptilians. Did and he have he did, a rail gun? I don't know what the hell he had, but uh, <laughs> maybe um, like a plasma thing. Yeah, of course, he did. Yeah, who knows? And then he, now, get this: he did this for 20 years, and then they brought him back through time into his 16-year-old body five minutes after they took him away. Exactly what – that's exactly that's almost exactly what Captain K said, okay? Uh-huh. I mean, I have the interview. It's on our it's, – it's there. I mean, I, Look I interviewed it up. It's this one guy. of my favorite episodes, yes, honestly. Yes, it's Rob's favorite episode. <laughs> but, 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 but go way back to Al Bielik. He said the same shit, exact same uh-huh. stuff. Right. And I don't want to get into it here because it might be something I look into or might be looking into, but I, I will say this. There's something going on that has has inspired or motivated this idea about six the, the, the age of 16 and displacement through time. Um because look, Bilek said it. Now it could just be that Captain K lifted it from Bilek, and Good lifted it from Captain K. But I have my reasons for noting that, for that to kind of pop up as a little flag, and and I'm going to take a closer look at it. And if I if I find something interesting or some stuff I'm suspecting, I, I might write about it. But uh, I just I just want to throw that out there that it, it's an interesting little theme that has popped up, but I, that does not mean that I credit good or this captain K or even Bilek with telling the truth. Um, it, you know, it, it could be for the same reason that I think that they've lifted the secret space program meme. Um, it could be that the, the real deal, the people who are running the real thing needed to discredit the whole field of research on that. And the best way to do it was to turn it into a circus show, and yeah. you you said suddenly Gaia's everywhere. My my Gaia's everywhere. My understanding is that Gaia was just you know yoga and granola and good feelings, and um, suddenly the guy who runs it now you know he has a ass load of money and wants to turn it into this um, you know alternative uh, UFO new age juggernaut in the media mm-hmm. and you know it's like hmm that's interesting follow the money trail you know see you know where that guy got his money see if there's any potential for government agency and there yeah. you might find the roots of any real secret space program representatives um behind the push of Corey good and basiago and william Tompkins and such and and why they're pushing you know the nazca mummy it could be to discredit people like Farrell and Fitz and Schratt and McCandlish and Brandenburg and myself and Olav and, and others. Um, you know, that's, that's possible. Um, discredit, so going back to- discredit the idea in the public's mind because you're going to make it just yeah. seem so absolutely crazy that most people yeah. are just going to laugh at it. And then, yeah. but then it'll just be equated with uh, just some new age wackos, you exactly. know? Because then we got like David Wilcox involved. Oh, oh, yeah, Mister, yeah. I'm the reincarnation of um, Edgar Casey. You know, oh, crying out loud, Wilcox is just astoundingly 
such a carnival barker. And, um, <laughs> you know, these guys, look, it's nothing but a load of new age crap. And they're taking the true believers, you know, for a ride. And, uh, you know, um, I just think more people are beginning to see it and want it to be called what it is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the rest of us, if we want serious research into the idea of a secret space program to, you know, continue and be taken seriously, this kind of stuff needs to be called out for what it is. And that's why I, that's why I'm vocal about it. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I just really wanted to ask you about that because it's just, um, well, you know, what's interesting is, um, somebody sent me the link, Joseph Battaglia sent me the link that uh, MUFON had posted, I guess it was MUFON, posted the symposium panel that um, Richard Dolan had talked about when he was interviewed by George Knapp on the the last, the, 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 a couple of Sundays ago was the last day of this controversial MUFON symposium in Vegas, um, which featured one day of serious uh Secret space program researchers that I some of all of them who I mentioned, uh, Brandenburg, Schratt, McCandlish, and such. And uh, then the next day they featured these whistleblower knuckleheads: Basiago, Tompkins, um, Corey Good, Sala. Um, and uh, it was very controversial because it was like, you know, what what are they thinking? And uh, so you can watch this panel and Dolan. You know, for some people don't like him. Some people say he's a shill for Uncle Sam, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't agree with everything he's always said, but I give him a lot of credit. When you watch this thing, he really took him on with them sitting right there. He Good. said this storytelling you guys are doing, Good. you know, got to start providing something more than just your BS. And it, it's really awesome. But Dolan's an historian. He knows like yeah. what you got to do. You got to research. He's done his work, man. Exactly. I mean, and whether you like his conclusions or opinions or not, that's beside the point. Now, what's interesting in that is Basiago, who's a lawyer, he goes into this legalese rambling uh, 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 description of what is evidence. You know, there's this kind of evidence and that kind of evidence. It sounds like when uh, – remember when Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal was was trying to say, well, let's define what the meaning of is is when he was trying to worm and weasel his way out yeah. of having – himself. You know, Basiaga was sounding like that. It was this convoluted, well, I'm a lawyer, see, and in the legal world, it's, you know, it's like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's, he's, wor- he's being a worm, okay? And then good, good comes up with this, well, you know, um, uh, there, there's different kinds of people. There's left brain people and right brain people, and left brain people and right brain people require different kinds of so-called evidence to convince them. And you're oh, like, please. Oh. Yes. Well, Dolan <laughs> calls Good is sitting right next to him. And he says, you know, I have to address something uh, Corey Good just said. He goes, you know, uh, truth is the truth, and it doesn't care what your personality is or whether you're left brain or right brain. I mean, he just flat out says that. He goes, truth is the truth. Good for him. So, you know, basically, let's, let's, oh, this thing is, is wonderful. But, um, you know, I've seen these guys, I've witnessed, you know, their people lift other people, literally, you know, take other events, graphics, and and paste their own stuff over it. 
which really is kind of, you know, taking someone else's artistic or intellectual property in a way. I saw that connected with the whole Corey Good, David Wilcock thing in 2015. They sent their shills to the 2015 Secret Space Program Conference in in, uh, Bastrop, Texas, the one I spoke at. They sent their shills there to make sure in the Q&A period that Corey Good was constantly brought up. Well, it didn't work. They got shot down because everybody else in the audience was, you know, there to hear the serious SSP research. And basically it was, you know, you know, it's like sit down and shut up with that Corey Good whistleblower crap. So they, you know, they kind of got shot down there and even the panel. And I was on that panel, you know, tried in a very polite way to say, uh, that's not what we're about. You know, we're about presenting some type of evidence, be it, you know, documentary evidence or some historical context that you can point to. And we're about admitting when we're speculating and theorizing, um, you know, and so, you know, I've seen them do that. They send their shills out, they lift other people's stuff, you know, without citing them. And, you know, there's two big media outlets in this field of the paranormal UFOs and alternative new age stuff. They know who they are. Everybody knows who they are. And they're constantly pushing guys like this. Uh, you know, and so this is what the public sees and hears, and this is what the general public, whoever's paying attention, you know, to this stuff, this is what they see and think represents all this stuff. And, you know, um, it marginalizes serious researchers. Uh, Agreed. And Agreed. kind of raids their work. And, and really ruins it in the eyes of, um, you know, a potential public out there that might be interested in what the legitimate researchers are doing. You know, they turn their back on it and, uh, you know. Now, in, in the interest of disclosure, I have appeared on a Gaia show. I was on Sean Stone's Buzzsaw. Um, so probably won't be asked back again. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm former special agent. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend to respect or say, I believe in something that I don't, yeah, or not you, be you've seen the disinformation stuff. You, you, yeah. I mean, you've, you've done it. So, you know, it, and well, Within a not, in, not in the UFO field. Well, right. And I didn't do it to, you know, public citizens who are unwitting and stuff. I did it to, uh, you know, um, intelligence officers of the KGB and the GRU. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, screw them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I really, the only thing I hated about Mirage Men was that they accused you of <laughs> doing it. <laughs> yeah. With the UFOs. That was like unnecessary. Well, yeah. The book. The book was um, – the film was fine. That's me. When they show me, that's me saying yeah. it. And the stuff they had me say, uh, yeah, I said that. I stand by what I said. Maybe whatever people's interpretation of the context was is their own mistake. But the book was uh, a little bit way meandering off you know, the context of what I was saying and even had stuff that I didn't say. But yeah. Well, there's one part. Where's there? There's one part in the in the film where Pilkington is talking to a, uh, telling him what, like telling somebody about what the movie is about, and he says that that in, tell this information 
guys like Walter, like uh, Richard Doty and Walter Bosley. And I'm like, then I asked you about it and you were like, no, nah, I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean the whole, the whole Benowitz thing. And I've even said that, that even Doty really wasn't the one that was really screwing with Benowitz mind. I yeah. think if that was anybody, that was the NSA. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably true. Well, Walter, we're running out of time here. Um, but uh, tell everybody where they can get the book because I understand it is a little different this time. How yes, you, uh, I know. Order it. Yeah, my my books uh, are print only, print on demand. Of course, um, you can get them at lulu.com, l-u-l-u.com. Uh, you can put them in by title. You can do a search on my name, and you come up with my publishing company uh, page. Which, when you go there, you'll find my nonfiction as well as a bunch of fiction. So, don't. I, I think it's pretty obvious which is which. But just so you know, you're going to see a bunch of my pulp fiction and some other authors and stuff. But, but all my nonfiction is there. That's the only way you can get my books now. They are no longer in digital format. I pulled them all from Amazon. Uh, Amazon is not friendly to writers or small press publishers. That's my statement. Um, and, uh, but I think, you know, there's people that are much more satisfied with the printed editions anyway, because they're printed nicely and they're very affordable. And, uh, that's, um, that's the only place you can get my books now. I actually enjoyed reading a printed book for a change. Yeah. All right, sir. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much. And guys, uh, we're going to be, we'll be back, uh, to close out the show on conspiracy normal. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. <laughs> so, by the way, the complete collection of Ambrose Beer's works is on Amazon right now for $1.40. I just downloaded it. It's 6,000 pages. Really? Yeah. That'll keep me busy for a while. Okay. Is this person again? The guy that we just spent an hour and a half talking about. Oh, and uh, he is Ambrose? Like, that's... No, Walter, the, no. The, he, he was like a, a Civil War guy, but he was also... Um, the guy on the cover here of this book. He... Plays good radio. He was uh, one of the top literary guys of the 19th century, I believe. Right. And he was sort of a bridge between Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. He wrote a lot of early horror stuff and influenced a lot of people that came along afterwards. But there's also a lot of ties to... Um, Different political things. He was ex-military and all this other stuff. Oh, oh gotcha. Okay. Yeah, you, you might have slept through that. Man, it it's took, this Luke's night. <laughs> it's, it's Luke's nap time. It's it took everything almost I Luke's had to stay time. awake for as long. I mean, like, you know, 44 ounces of caffeine and I'm still passing out. Like, yeah. Yeah, dude. man. Like, I, like, sometimes I look. O- I would look over at Luke and he's, and he's like twitching over there. Like, he's just doing that twitch when you first fall asleep. Yeah. Well, like, I, I started having... <laughs> You ever have like one of those weird kind of dream vision things? Are you white boy wasted? No, not today. Did you get white boy wasted I did last, last night? night? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> What'd you dream about? No, it, Getting white boy wasted. I, uh, 
I was like, I was, I was having one of those like half asleep dreams where I was skateboarding and I fell off a ledge. Like I, and I, I fell off, you know, and I was like falling. So uh, I, I just like jolted real quick. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Do you even dream about skateboarding, bro? That's a true skater. Yeah, dude. That means you're not, that means you're not a poser. Rat life. Yeah, man. <laughs> what are you doing? You don't skate. You're wearing airwalks. You're a poser. <laughs> I remember those the skater shoes, airwalks. Yeah, my brother was into it. <laughs> uh, I want to read a. Uh, this is from a poem about Carcosa from Robert W. Chambers' King in Yellow, which we talked about Ambrose Bierce. Um, it's based off Ambrose Bierce, but it's based off Ambrose Bierce. I just thought you know, just be a good way to close out the show. Um. Along the shore, the cloud waves break. The twin suns sink behind the lake. The shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise and strange moons circle through the skies. But stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that the Hyades still shall sing where flap the tatters of the king must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. Die thou unsung as tears unshed. So dry and die. In Lost Carcosa. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's, that's got a love crafty and vibe to it. Yeah, too. it does. It does. It gave me chills, bro. And and Luke, <laughs> Luke should put that to a metal beat, like the, the blast beats. Yeah. Like, no, that's a grind, slow, some grindcore. Uh, no, that, that's a slow, <laughs> sludgy, like stoner metal song. It's like right a there. doom metal song. Exactly. <laughs> I have all those presets in my new pedals. <laughs> Where's my punk song, dude? You gonna come where's over? My black, where's my black flag? You gonna come ask, over with a recording um, device? Because I don't have one. <laughs> Wait, well, where, where are we at right now? <laughs> Rob, Rob's a busy man. <laughs> he is, man. He's got an '80s cover band, a podcast. Yeah. And then he then works. So. I've got half of those responsibilities, and I still don't feel like I have any free time. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what did you think of that interview, man? Did you enjoy it? Oh yeah, yeah. I always love Walter. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, everything from the um, breakaway civilization stuff to the just bizarro underground connections to everything. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Walter admits he speculates, but I, but I love it. I think it's healthy. Well, I think that's the best part where he comes right out front. He's like, look, this is just me, like, shooting in the dark, but it's interesting stuff. So. Right. At least he's not saying he's a genetically engineered Martian super soldier. Right. It's, it, I, I prefer, I'll take that to the opposite any day where someone's like, this is how it is, and it's crazy yeah you know yeah uh next time guys um special treat we have um jenny ashford and tom ross coming on awesome we're gonna we're, vape all the whole show i think and you and tom should have a vape off we are going to um because <laughs> because though all the pretty much all the way from to for, to roswell and from roswell we listened to the 13 o'clock podcast and these guys have an awesome podcast. I mean, they talk about just about anything, true crime, uh, ghost and demon stuff, movies. I mean, it's, it's all over, uh, necrophilia. It's, it's <laughs> over the board. And, and, and they managed to be like, they take a very s- skeptical stance on everything, but still managed to present the material openly and honestly. And it's hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. I love them. Yeah. It, it, it's great. Like my favorite was the necrophilia show where Tom just walks <laughs> off in disgust. <laughs> That was that was fantastic. My favorite was the three or four episodes afterwards where Jenny kept bringing it up just to mess with uh-huh, him. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
So that's it, guys. Uh, we're going to close this show out. Rob, real quick, if you can tell everybody again about Patreon. We're, we need more money. We want your money. Yes, we do. It's, uh, we have expenses to cover, and we're doing a pretty decent job with it. And we've got a lot of subscribers already, and we love you guys, all of you. Um, but we're continually, every month, putting up bonus episodes uh, to those of you that want to contribute a little bit more at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Um, come check it out. There's different tiers. We've got you know the bonus episodes. We've got wallpapers. We've got some of them that have Luke on it. They're awesome. Um, <laughs> T-shirts. Luke, Luke's our Alfred E. Newman. Yeah, come join our community there. It's great. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week on Conspiranormal. Watch out for blue avians. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.